Please stand with me for our gospel reading. Our gospel reading this morning is from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 9, beginning in verse 35 to the end of verse 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the, Father, or sorry, to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now let's give our confession of faith together in the Apostles' Creed. Christ Church, do you believe in God the Father? I believe in God the Father Almighty, Creator of heaven and earth. Do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ? I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead. Do you believe in the Holy Spirit? I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning, friends. It's good to be with you. I hope you are having a good Sunday so far. Um, I missed you. Um, I was away last Sunday, and all this week, I was away at our diocesan synod. Now, for those of you that don't know what a synod is, that's like a a general conference. So uh, a diocese is what we are a part of. That's the larger family in the Anglican church that we're a part of. So if you think of it like this, there's churches, or you can call them parishes. Then there's a diocese, which is usually a, a larger area of connected churches. And then there's the province, okay, not the Canadian province, the Anglican province. And so the province that we are a part of, it's called the Anglican Church in North America. The diocese that we are a part of is called the Anglican Network in Canada. And the church that we're a part of is called? You're getting it, you're getting it. Okay, so our synod is with our diocese, okay, and so... I had the opportunity to go do that this week, and Jackie came with me, and we had two what's called parish delegates. So at our annual vestry meeting, we choose two people to represent our church and to vote for different issues um, at the Synod. And so our two delegates this year were Robin Wilson. Do you want to stand up? And Taya Matchett. 
Um, and they did a great job representing you and being with us. It was a real gift to us to have them with us. So this year we were in Vancouver. Uh, we alternate each year between east and west. And so this year was in Vancouver. Next year we'll be in Ottawa again. Um, and we keep doing that every year. Um, and so what I want to do this morning is I just want to touch on a few quick highlights of our synod. And then I want to sum up and wrap up our harvest series that we've been doing in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 9, 10, a little bit of 11. So there's four kind of highlights of this week that I just wanted you to be aware of. The first is what's called the Bishop's Charge. So each year at Synod, our bishop gives a charge to the diocese of what should be our priorities, um, the things that, because as Anglicans, we are under authority. That's a high value for us, is that we believe that healthy Christian ministry is under healthy Christian authority. And so our bishop, his name is Dan Gifford. He's our diocesan bishop. He just uh, moved out east where he's uh, building a home there for himself and his wife and two boys. And they're going to take care of serving the eastern part of Canada as well as overseeing all of Canada, including us. Those of you who were at our Easter services last year would have met Bishop Dan. He's been a real gift to us. But his charge this year really fit with the whole theme of Synod, which was evangelism. The idea that we are being sent out by Jesus with the gospel. And I'll tell you, these are recorded, so maybe this is a bad idea. But here's the thing you want from your bishop. Can I just tell you? This is what you want from your bishop. You want your bishop to keep to the absolute center of what matters most in the faith. That's what your bishop's job is to do. Did you know that? That's their job. Their job is to keep us on the gospel, to safeguard the gospel, and to call the church to, to fealty and love and devotion and service to the gospel. That's what the bishop should do. Okay? So your bishop shouldn't be creating drama. Your bishop should be bringing clarity with the gospel. Okay? So Bishop Dan gets up, and this is his second charge now, I think, since he was elected. And the first charge he did last year, I remember sitting there going, I was crying through it, going, this is the kind of clarity I want from my bishop. This is the kind of gospel devotion I want from my bishop. And you, you, you're stuck with my preaching every week. You know I've got pretty high standards on like gospel clarity. And so I want my bishop to challenge me, call me up. And so he's just done such a great job of that since he started. So now for this second charge to have him go, now take this gospel, Christ-motivated, gospel-driven, be passionate about sharing this Jesus with the world. And I was like, yes, I'm in. Captain, my captain. Like, I just loved it. So Bishop Dan, I think, is doing a great job of serving our diocese. It is giving a clear vision um, for us, and I'm thankful for it. So can we just be thankful for that for a minute? Um, now, here's the second big thing that happened this year at Synod. We elected a new, what's called a suffragan or suffragan bishop of the West. 
Okay, so Bishop Dan moved to the east. So now here in the west, we need a bishop under Bishop Dan to serve our district. So we voted in um, a, bishop, a bishop elect. Now we had two candidates. The first was Venerable Mike Stewart, who's our Archdeacon of the Lower Mainland. And the other option was the Reverend Sean Love, who serves in, I forget, St. John's, Richmond. Richmond is where he's from. And honestly, it was, we had, I felt we had two great candidates. It was like, no matter which way this goes, I think we're in good hands, and so I was very thankful for it. But in the end, who was voted for was um, Mike Stewart. And so Mike has been the rector of St. Matthew's in Abbotsford for many years. It's a thriving parish, growing parish. You're seeing great things there. But I think in the end, the real gift that I see from Bishop Mike, for those of you that are just visiting today, sorry for the business. Um, but this is part of our family life. And so it's just important to update each other. But I think the thing I see most beautifully in, in Mike is just a beautiful pastor's heart. And you can't talk to him without feeling like you're having a heart-to-heart. And I think that's what we're looking for in a shepherd. I think that's a real gift to us in the years ahead of us. So that was a big deal. So we're going to have a new bishop. He won't be consecrated until March. So you could be praying for him. Um, our province has really strengthened the vetting process of bishops because they want to ensure that we have healthy bishops. Um, and so when I was talking with... Um, with Bishop-elect Mike, he was just saying, I have so many essays to write over the next few months. And so just be praying for him. Um, my prayer for him right then was that the yoke would feel easy, that there be clarity from the spirit of the goodness of this action, of what he's doing. Um, now, the other two things that happened at Synod that were highlights for me is we celebrated a lot of new church plants, and then we welcomed new parishes into our diocese. So that's whole churches joining our diocese because they see the health and the potential for home for them and their churches. So whole congregations have gone through discernment processes to join our diocese. So it's very exciting to see those things. And the church plants, it's just so fun to hear about new churches being born. You know, new missions being launched. And so it was just super exciting to see all of those things. And then every synod, I always come away with this strong piece, is that our diocesan diversity is the greatest strength of our diocese, aside from the gospel. But like, it's this, there's a beautiful diversity across Canada in the family that we're a part of, different expressions, different giftings, different emphasis, but a strong unity in Christ, clarity on the gospel, rooted in the traditions, and commitment to mission. It's like every person you're talking to, you're like, I found my people. It's a good feeling. Um, and I think what we see in Anik is that it's a microcosm of what the global Anglican church looks like. You have to understand that as um, the 
vast majority of the Anglican Church in the world is situated in the global south. So there's growing churches in Africa, in, um, in Asia, in Brazil, in South America, all these different places. There's so much growth in the Anglican Church, and we're just a small minority in that. But when you gather at Anik, there's this beautiful sense of like, it's a foretaste of heaven. All the cultures coming together, all the differences, all the people, but all the same on Jesus. And it's a beautiful thing to see. So we, we hear from like Nigerian churches here in Canada, Cantonese speaking, Mandarin speaking, English, French, young churches, old churches. It's beautiful. Honestly, we're a part of something that I think is beautiful in Jesus. And so I just wanted you to know that. Like sometimes you can hear about like, you know, the business or the politics of, of the national pieces of the church. But I want you to know it's like when you go into those spaces, what you see, what you feel, what you experience is more Jesus. Isn't that what we want? Just like we talk about like our, our parish council, we see that what we preach about in the pulpit, what we seek to learn and grow in together in pilgrimage, you should be able to come to parish council and go, I see it working here. It should be even more so the case when you get all the clergy together and the uh, parish delegates and the bishops together. If you get up into those higher levels and it's all politicizing, competitiveness, you know, flesh instead of spirit, all of these conniving, emotionally unintelligent, that should be concerning, shouldn't it? If they're leading the national church, I think the beautiful thing is going into those spaces and seeing unity and humility and love and non-competitiveness and encouragement and mutuality. And so next week you'll hear from our delegates. I've asked them not to cover so much the business that took place, but that you would hear from them, what did you experience? So we'll hear from Robin and from Taya a little bit next Sunday. Okay? So all in all, I just want you to know Synod was a beautiful time and a beautiful week. I think we're in good hands, and we have a good future in the diocese. Amen? Okay. Okay, let's shift gears. Let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew. We have been in this study for a number of weeks now, and I want to bring it to a close because Jesus is going to shift gears in Matthew chapter 11. But the emphasis of these texts of Scripture that we've been looking at is Jesus' teaching on how to do evangelism which I thought fit well with the whole synod about training and equipping evangelism. Um, but what we've been wrestling with is what's Jesus' kind of way of doing this? What are the things that matter to him in doing this? And how do we think about it in such a way that we as a church have actually bought into the idea, have committed ourselves to the actual function of evangelism, and that it's an essential part of our church. Now, we've covered a lot of texts, like a lot of verses. We've covered a lot of deep and intense elements in it. But what I wanted to do today is just kind of like a checklist to go, 
here's seven things that I think are the main points of this whole section of Scripture, these two chapters, and some questions to go, where am I at with these seven essentials? Because I think for us as a church, here's what our claim is. We claim we have found in the person and work of Jesus, this is the most significant thing to happen in the universe, Jesus. He has accomplished significant things that save humanity and save the world. Do we believe that? And we believe that the way of Jesus works for everything. Literally, everything about the human life, everything that's wrong in the creation, every hope and dream that we would have, every longing that we have, everything about everything is fulfilled in the way of Jesus. Do we believe that? And that Jesus is the hope of the future forever. Okay? These are like the fundamentals of the Gospel. If we believe that, and yet, either unintentionally or intentionally, have made decisions to say, but we're not going to tell people. Okay? Then we've got a problem. Because either everything we claim to believe then isn't true, and we're just pretending, it's kind of this fun game we play in the church, wouldn't it be nice if this was true? But it's not, so we won't tell anyone. So that's one option. Or it's that we know that it's true, but we've just decided for our own benefits, we're not going to tell anybody. <laughs> you can feel this is, oh, this is a problem, right? It is true, but we're just not going to tell anyone. Or I think the third option, which is more the reality of what we're dealing with, is it is true but we've got some subconscious hang-ups that are keeping us from living the way we want to live. I think that's more likely. So what we want to do is we don't just want to hear Jesus' ethics of evangelism, how he wants us to go and share the kingdom, and then walk away and not do it, because we haven't actually answered the questions internally. We want to get to a place where we're going, we know what Jesus is asking, We've met with Jesus in such a way that we feel like we can do what he's asking. And not only that, we're passionate about doing it for a long time. I think that's what we want. So let me just go through seven of the keys. I had to narrow it down. There's way more. And you're looking at it going, Ryan can't talk about seven things in 25 minutes. And you're probably right. But I'm going to try. So let's look at seven things that I think are essential from the text that we've studied so far. Now, I think the first question everyone needs to ask is this. Is, am I doing evangelism for the right reasons? Part of what keeps us from doing evangelism is that we don't want to do it for the wrong reasons. So the first thing is to go, am I doing it for the right reasons? What's motivating me to consider doing this? And here's the thing. We're not being motivated by Jesus to do this because he's angry at us. He's motivating us to do this with the same motivations that motivate him. 
And I think those motivations are these two things. Confidence in the good news of the kingdom. Like Jesus wants us to go out into the world because we have found the answer to every problem in Him. Because we have found the solution to everything in Him. Jesus wants us to have an authentic confidence that the kingdom is what everyone is actually looking for and what everyone needs. And the second piece is Jesus wants us to be motivated by compassion. He wants us to look into the world and have eyes to see, not hard hearts, but eyes to see the harassed and the helpless. That's the language Jesus uses. He looks out and sees people who are harassed and helpless without a shepherd. And so we hear the groanings of people. We hear the longing. We hear the trouble. We hear the pain. And we've got ears to hear it and are moved by it. That we don't just hear it and go, yeah, that sucks. And then keep the good news to ourselves. We hear it and we go, I'm moved by compassion to offer you the help you're looking for. The second question I think we have to ask is, have I been sent out by the Lord of the harvest? That's how Jesus views it. As he looks out on the world, is moved by compassion, and then his answer to that is, he is enlisting laborers, helpers, So we have to see in Jesus' vision or his design of this is that he needs us. He's chosen to design it that way. That he needs his people to be with him in the work. Do we view that as good news or as bad news? Because wouldn't it be kind of nice if it was just like Jesus is just going to do it by himself and we're like, oh, great, a new person that Jesus just did. But Jesus is actually saying, I want you to be with me in the work. And has designed it that way that he needs us to join him. So we need to see it that way. We need to see the world as Jesus does. The harvest is plentiful. We see God at work preparing souls for salvation. And then we see ourselves as commissioned by him to join him in that work. And that Jesus is offering every single one of us, his followers, a cause to live for. Here's what we see in our world right now. Everybody wants, sees what's wrong in the world, and it feels compelled to join a cause that's going to try and change it, try and fix it. And so what do we see in social media constantly? This is my cause. This is my cause. This is my cause. You've got to choose to be on this cause or you're against my cause. What's your cause? Pick your cause. It's intense, isn't it? And there's all these causes to choose from. And then you're like balancing one cause versus another cause. And you're like, well, if I do this cause, but then the downsides are that it hurts this cause. and It's exhausting, isn't it? And there's so much pressure to go, what's your cause? Because if you don't have a cause, are you really living? And are you contributing to what's wrong in the world? I find over and over and over again, I'm going, my cause is Jesus' cause. And Jesus' cause serves all the causes. It's like a clarity of mind 
to go, this is my one thing that I live for, and I've chosen rightly because this one thing benefits all things. But here's the the piece, I think, for us is to go, but am I in? Do I feel that enlistment in me to go, Jesus is my cause? His mission is my mission. This is what I exist for. I'm not caught up in the other stuff. I'm just Jesus. And then I'm Jesus in these other places that I'm serving. I'm with Him in these other places that I'm serving. I think what it offers us is that clarity of mind, but also the purpose and passion that we long for. I think we feel most alive often when we know the righteousness of the cause we're living for. We feel activated. We feel like we're alive. We feel like we're benefiting. We feel like we're doing something in the world. That sense you're meant to find in and from Jesus. So the third question is this. Am I then doing this, living this out, in my own strength or in His authority? Here's the thing you find out when you're young. You're going to join a cause. You're going to work super hard. You're going to pour your whole life out for it. And then you realize two, three years in, you're out of energy. You're out of strength. You're out of ideas. You're out of wisdom. And now you're 40. Sorry, I'm having a personal moment. Right, But when you're young, you're like, we can just do it. We'll fix everything. We'll do the hard work. We've got all the answers. And you pour yourself out, and then you're exhausted and burned out. This is a high call and a high cause, but with it comes great resourcing. And this is how Jesus sends out his apostles. He's saying, proclaim as you go, saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand, but then you're going to do things that are beyond your doing. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. What is necessary for that? God. God is necessary for that. So engage in a work that's so far beyond your abilities that you actually need God to be the one to do it when you're in that moment. Isn't that beautiful? So here's this picture of like, rather than... What's the good you can accomplish in your own strength? Jesus is saying, what's the good that I'm going to accomplish through you by my great strength? And so this is the beauty of the design is to go, Jesus is saying, I need you to be my co-laborers, but then I'm going to miraculously do the work through you once you've signed up. Isn't that beautiful? So your conduit. So the picture here is then Jesus present in you doing miraculous things in the people that He is going after. So then it's not about our abilities. It's not our mission, our evangelism in the world. It's not about convincing people to sign up for this, to believe in this. What we're doing primarily is we're showing up in a space, identifying need, and then offering an experience and an impact of the reality of Jesus. 
We're standing in the space where somebody bears their need and goes, this is where my life's a mess. This is where it's broken. This is where I'm struggling. This is where I'm worn out. And from compassion, we don't just go, oh, I'm sorry, and I'm sad with you, though that's essential. But we then say, can we try something? We then say, do you want to receive some grace from Jesus? Can I pray for you? And in that moment, we carve out that space and we say, what if heaven was to come here? In the simplicity of this moment, of holding a weeping friend's hand, crying with them, and then saying, come Jesus, to this part of my friend's heart right now. And just wait. Wait. Hold your breath and see what happens. And see if Jesus shows up. Isn't that a holy thing? Isn't it? And then to see in that moment, because the picture we get here from the Gospels is, Jesus is saying you can be so confident in the message, moved by compassion, know you're meant to be there, and then expect to see the impossible in that person's life as just a taste. What we're going to see in the coming chapters, they don't even have to have fully believed in Jesus yet. They don't have to have anything except to have been honest about their need and willing to receive divine help. And watch what Jesus does. Miraculous things. Healings. Redeemings. Dark spirits and dark thoughts and dark pain within the soul of the person. Jesus can bring freedom. A taste of salvation. Do we believe that? But haven't we shrunk? Haven't we stepped back going, let's not make this awkward. But in doing so, we've lost the potential for the otherworldly to break into this world. So that's what Jesus is calling us to. But we're not doing it in our own strength. We're not convincing people. We're just coming into the brokenness of the world and saying, do you want to see if Jesus will show up? Do you want to try Jesus for this? Can I pray for you? Simplicity. I honestly think if praying for someone looked like you just sitting with them and weeping with them and sitting quietly, you will see the miraculous. You don't have to pray the right thing. It's just making space for Jesus. Now, let's watch what, as, as these things keep moving. So here's the next question. Am I doing it to give or to receive? This is a key piece of Jesus' instruction. So people aren't a means to an end. People in and of themselves are of immeasurable value to God in the Gospels. So we're not putting timetables on people. We don't need them to respond a certain way to make us feel okay. We're, taught, we're genuinely engaging with people in need, hoping that they would see and receive and experience that Jesus will meet them there. But if they don't, we don't need them to respond. right? So we don't need from them to feel successful. 
We don't need from them to join our church so we feel like our church is cooler and growing. We don't need them to grow to feel like our influence is growing. We don't need that, right? We're authentically engaging with them for their good and for the glory of Jesus. And then the next question we have to ask is, do I value and respect the agency of others? This is where Jesus teaches in his whole ethic is, look, if they say no to you, believe them. If they say they're not interested, accept that. Respect the person. Why does Jesus say that? Because Jesus wants the real person to really interact with his real salvation. That means the real heart of a person and every individual needs to have a voice and the ability to choose Christ, not be manipulated or coerced into coming to church. Right? So when you see those evangelistic models that's more like overpowering somebody into receiving Jesus... Throw up in your mouth a little bit and get out of there. Seriously. It's gross. Because the whole point of the Gospel is about saving that real person with their real voice and their real agency and their real choice. And so we can't force that or push that. How weird would that be? That's to do the same thing to that person that the kingdom of darkness has done. It's to overpower them and trounce upon them. Jesus is saying, respect it. And then he's saying, be prepared for rejection and persecution. So, that's the next question. Am I prepared for rejection and persecution? Now, I've hit this one enough with my little jabs at it. That there's true persecution and then there's not true persecution. Okay? And we don't want the facade. We don't want to pretend things are worse than they are. We want to be honest about it. But here's what I think is at the heart of this. We don't need everyone to agree with us. And we don't need them to agree with us to love them. But Jesus is essentially telling us to be comfortable sitting in the uncomfortable conversations for the sake of others. Because we want them to hear the gospel. So here's the piece. Sometimes having the Jesus conversation is uncomfortable. Right? Is that fair? Just me? It's uncomfortable. Talking about where people need Jesus most is uncomfortable. Because we're talking about pain, we're talking about guilt, we're talking about shame, we're talking about the hardship and suffering of their lives, we're talking about broken relationships. Here's the thing, Christians, true followers of Jesus, should feel comfortable in that conversation. You hear me? That should be a well-trodden ground for us. So much so that our comfort with it can make somebody else who's uncomfortable with it finally comfortable talking about it. That's what I actually believe. Now here's the other thing. Talking about those things, we're comfortable with the discomfort. 
But now let's bring in Jesus. That's a whole other component. And what's going to come out might be anger at God, anger at Christians, anger at the church, anger at feeling alone. Those are some big feelings, aren't they? Could pull out the atrocities of the church. Who knows what else? And with that could come a whole deal of anger, couldn't it? Some of it righteous, some of it unrighteous. Part of what Jesus is saying in saying being prepared for persecution is you should still feel comfortable when it's getting really uncomfortable. Okay? To go, I can sit in this space with you even though you're mad. Right? And then, but think of the miracle of that. Non-defensive, non-retaliatory, non-violent, just sitting in that space with them to go, I can handle this. Because Jesus can handle this. And Jesus isn't feeling defensive. And Jesus isn't feeling angry back at you. I can sit in this space with you. Isn't that a miracle in and of itself? Isn't that a gift to the world? To go, let me just hear it. But then Jesus is saying, it can get real bad. There's things that are hotly against the gospel. Things get real intense and real harm can be done. But can you trust the fact that I'm going to take care of you in that space? So, part of it going, are you prepared for rejection and persecution? Is not to get your guard up and to get ready for the battle. It's the opposite. Is to go, are you ready in your heart to sit in that space confident in me? That's what Jesus is saying. Can we catch that? But isn't that beautiful? So the last question is this. Am I then living for heavenly rewards? This is chapter 10, 40, verse 42 that we looked at. We've been freed from worldly pursuit, in theory, of success, of wealth, and acceptance. We're trying to be. We're trying to receive that from Jesus, that freedom. Part of, it, part of that then is changing our value system to go. I'm not questing after success for wealth, for acceptance, for celebration, for significance. I'm not questing after that. My cause now is not self-satisfaction. My cause is to invest in the kingdom. That's what we're living for. We're saying this cause is bigger than that silly cause of self, we're now into the big cause of Jesus and his kingdom. And so part of it is we're changing our value system to go, this is what I want to invest in. This is what I want to pour into. So every person here is called to participate in Jesus' harvest. Do we believe that? Every person is called to participate in the harvest. But also there's this piece of where there are going to be certain individuals who are especially gifted. And do we support and resource those people to do that great work? So when you hear like someone like Robin who's going, I'm feeling called to devote my life to VIU campus as a missionary. Okay, That means very front lines, very intense work soul-wrenching work of sitting that space I just described of not only pain but hostility 
living, imagine living every day in that conversation. You think that would be costly? You think that would weigh on her heart and her mind and, and, and even the recovery time of that in her family life? You hear me? That's significant, isn't it? So part of the church is also to identify who's like called to devote their life to that in a very intense way. And then Jesus says, if you even give that person a cup of water, there's rewards for you in the kingdom. Isn't that interesting? So missionaries going around the world, even our honorary associates and priests in the work that they do. Jesus is saying, not only are we invested in that, but are we supporting and resourcing those who, who are especially giving their lives to it? And that in that comes the real, real reward. So the reward we're living for is not momentary earthly significance, is it? Don't, haven't we been saved from that in Jesus? We're going, oh, thank you for saving me from that rat race and that pursuit. But now we're about the kingdom and we're about storing up and investing in a future, an eternal future of enjoying the Lord's enjoyment and His rewards for us because we've invested in the right things. Here's my last analogy here. Lots of conversations with people over the last however many years about cryptocurrencies. And you hear people who are like, oh, I wish I would have got into Bitcoin earlier because now it's worth so much. And often the process you hear from people is like, I wish I would have saw the potential of that investment 10, 15 years ago. I wish I could see the future of what's coming. Jesus is saying, I'll show you the future that's coming. And I'll show you the worthwhile investments. And it's not wealth. And it's not earthly success. And it's not earthly significance. Those are bad investments with bad returns. Instead, invest in my kingdom. Invest in the future. Invest in the church. Invest in the kingdom because those things are going to have dividends for eternity. It's a carnal example. But this is essentially the way the Bible talks about the kingdom is to go. Don't seek these kind of momentary rewards. Seek the rewards that last forever. And there's going to be an eternity where people look at you and go, wow, you saw it, didn't you? You saw the writing on the wall. And you invested early. And look at the rewards you've reaped. And there will be great celebration. But what will those things, what are the things that will be rewarded? Giving a cup of water to the missionary. All called to evangelize. But keep an eye out for those especially given to the task. So when we look at these questions, here's what I want you to do is I want, as you're asking it of yourself, to go, where am I hung up? Maybe I can answer the first one. Oh, I want to do it for the right reasons. I think I would have the right reasons for doing it. And I I believe that Jesus has sent me out. I'm called to this. It scares me, but I feel like Jesus has sent me. But for a long time, I thought I wasn't very good at it. For a long time, I thought I was bad about talking about it. I thought, oh, other people must be just more gifted about it. Or just scared me and my personality didn't seem conducive with it, so I stopped doing it. That's where you have to identify, 
I let something get in the way and I need to hear Jesus here. That makes sense? And instead of it being focused on my ability to communicate or my ability to invite people or my bravery, I need it to be about Jesus working in that space. And then you can keep asking the questions. Am I doing it to give or to receive? Because here's the thing, it's going to go bad sometimes. It's going to be real awkward sometimes. More awkward than you're ready to handle. And you're going to walk away and go, I don't think I want to ever do that again. Okay? But then you have to assess, why am I doing it? Is it for me? For me to feel comfortable? For me to feel like I won? For me to feel like I was awesome? For me to feel like I'm killing it out there? And you're going to answer that question and go, no, that's not my reason. That can't be my reason. My reason has to be, again, because it's motivated by compassion and conviction in the gospel. And then it makes you go back out there in a few days. Once you've kind of recovered. And you're not thinking about that conversation over and over and over again in the shower. Right? And then we move on to the next question. But for you, everyone's journey is going to be a little bit different. But all I can do as your pastor is to go, look, here's the teachings of Jesus. Here's the questions you're going to ask. But you've got to do that inner work with Jesus. And this is a journey over time to grow in confidence. Don't you think? Are you going to be just awesome at this? Walk out of here today and be like, the king at this. Is that going to happen? Just for Karin. You're going to find your way, but let me promise you this. In each step, in each one of these places, here's what you're going to find, Jesus. And each one of them is going to necessitate you being closer to and needing more of Jesus. Who wants that? Who wants more of Jesus? So going into into this growing process is going to require you to have more contact with Jesus, and I think that's a good thing. I think it's a fruitful thing. And I think you'll find over time you'll feel more and more like yourself and like you're living out loud with authenticity and conviction with a cause that you know is motivated by the right reasons and serves the world. Is that good news? Okay, so maybe in the next couple weeks just be reading over this whole section. 9, 10, and 11, Matthew, digesting it inwardly, and just kind of asking these questions of yourself. Now, as we turn our hearts to the table, wherever you've identified this morning, I need more of Jesus here, we have more of Jesus here. This is the setup. Hear the word, see your need for Christ, and then receive Christ by faith. This isn't theory. This is reality. Okay? So take a moment of private kind of assessment to get your heart ready to receive Jesus.